Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. That was Joe Biden taking the oath of office as the 46th President of the United States last Wednesday, ending a tumultuous transition that saw Donald Trump claiming election fraud and that he had actually won a second term as president. Welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We're going to talk about the transition from Trump to Biden with two writers who should be very familiar to delegates and readers as they are former staffers. And I had them on prior to Election Day in November. Please welcome back Brett Samuels, who covers the White House for The Hill, and Jake LaHutt, who covers politics for Business Insider. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on. Happy New Year. And how are you guys doing after a wild and crazy past couple of months? <laughs> thanks, Sam. Doing fine. Brett? Yeah, thanks for having us, Ken. I appreciate uh, it. <laughs> I know when we talked in November, we were a little concerned what was going to happen with the election. And, you know, we knew Trump, you know, had said he wasn't going to accept the results of the election if he had lost. But, Brett, you're inside the White House there. Did you ever think we would see what we have seen the last couple of months where Trump's going after the going to the courts with his lawyers, trying to overturn an election in several states? And then what we saw on January 6th, I mean, could you even in your wildest dreams or wildest nightmares think about that what that would happen uh you know it's uh i i think i maybe had said this a couple months ago when we were talking but i always thought you know that if the president lost president trump that he he would find a way to you know never explicitly say i lost or i conceived defeat because that's just not really who he is but uh even i was surprised that you know the lengths that this got to that he was calling up the secretary of state in georgia to explicitly essentially ask him to you know quote unquote find votes for him that he was calling lawmakers in michigan and in pennsylvania to try and intervene in those states uh that he's threatening to primary you know support primary challengers for the governors of georgia or arizona or wherever it may be um and obviously we saw it kind of culminate that he just kept pushing this this lie and it culminated with the violence on January 6th. So, um, you know, certainly I expected him to not go quietly and to never sort of acknowledge his own legitimate defeat maybe. But, uh, even I was surprised at, at the lengths and the unfortunate, uh, lengths that it went to. Yeah, Jake, especially with, you know, he's had, he had backing of basically all the, a lot of the senators and Republicans and the, uh, and the, uh, and the house. And obviously, some of the TV, like Fox and uh, some of the, uh, Newsmax, I believe it is. You're watching this on television. You're watching this uh, from from far. To you, what was how crazy was it? Um, it was definitely weird planning 
for the January 6th March, which I think, um, you know, I talked to our editors about probably going back to like early December. Um, and, uh, yeah, like you said, you know, I, I, I do for kind of part of my beat is, is monitoring quite a bit of uh, Fox news and Newsmax and, uh, you know, OAN if I can. Um, but I mean, just kind of general, you know, like media silos and, I think I went into January 6th expecting to, to be, you know, like, as frank as possible, uh, something that would have been around as bad as Charlottesville, to be honest. Like, I, I, I definitely thought it was definitely whatever was going to happen was going to be bad. Um, you know, we knew a couple of the militia groups that were, you know, bragging about going, like the Oath Keepers and, you know, the Three Percenters, the Prabhupada's, you know, and unfortunately the American people have, have heard a lot of these names by now. Um but uh, my job for that day was just to do, you know, basically a, a, a live blog to let people know, like, what was happening it, just in kind of, like, parliamentary terms for, you know, the Electoral College certification. So I had watched Trump's speech. And, you know, I, like, Brett had seen a lot of Trump rally speeches, then to a Trump rally. Um, and in some ways, this wasn't different from those, but I, I definitely thought that when Trump was going after Pence, I took immediate note of that. I was like, that's, that's not great. Uh, and then, you know, I switched over to, to work with a colleague on uh, explaining, you know, what the House and Senate were doing and for just kind of as, an, as a companion for people at home. And it, it became kind of quickly apparent whenever I would check Twitter uh, that something else was happening. And then... Uh, you know, we really just scrambled the jets to cover the full thing. A lot of people who normally cover, you know, business or tech news for us jumped on to cover uh, everything that's happening and are calling, you know, the Capitol Police. And uh, it was just a logical conclusion of where a lot of this has been going. And I think that what we're seeing now is the whole disinformation infrastructure that led to this, irrespective of Trump, is still going to be around. And the people who did this who have, you know, haven't been arrested are still going to be around. And we have to kind of figure out a way to, you know, deal with that as a country. And uh, I, I think that's, you know, still a huge unanswered question with all this, even with Trump not having Twitter and, you know, finally being out of office. Yeah, Trump in, in that speech, you know, basically said, you know, let's walk down to the Capitol. Of course, he doesn't walk down to the Capitol, but for him to say that, just to, do you think that, yeah, uh, basically said that's okay. Let's for you guys to do that, and I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't do anything about it. I mean, it's not just that. If you, uh, if you look at the a lot of the charging documents for the people who were involved, I mean, they just say that they did this because of Trump. You know, like like they, there's no. In terms of like, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, you know, lawyers who we interviewed on this have said that the incitement matter is is not really in dispute, um, you know, clearly Trump and whoever ends up defending him on this will try to defend him. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just the let's go to the Capitol line. I mean, it was the singling out of Mike Pence. It was the very clear framing of, you know, going after Republicans and saying that there are a couple who are on our side, but a lot of them, you know, are crooked. And, uh, and it was all of the speeches before, too. Uh, you know, Don Jr. Uh, gave a pretty incendiary speech. Obviously, a lot of people have seen the Rudy Giuliani clip for Trial by Combat. But I, mean, I watched a number of the structure speeches. And it was all the same message. Uh, 
so, you know, I think that the, the, the nitpicking over, like, you know, how explicitly did Trump incite the rally, you know, Trump didn't say, go break windows and all that. It's like the, the, the people who have been charged with doing the crimes have said, you know, we were doing this for President Trump. If you're a believer in QAnon, you know, this was like the big day. This was supposed to be the judgment day they've talked about on these forums for years and people have dismissed it as, you know, whatever, but it, like it happened. And I, I think that, um, it's just not very useful for anybody other than actual lawyers in court, I think, to try to like, you know, really, really pin down to what degree Trump incited it. I just don't think that's a debate at this point. Now, Brett, uh, we were talking before we went on the air. You were actually at home watching this, but when you heard him, uh, Trump, talk about you know criticizing Mike Pence, the vice president, what were your thoughts about? Oh, I mean, did you think that this? Oh, this is a uh, this is not a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, he Trump the night before that rally, uh, he held a rally. I guess it was two nights before. Um, held a rally in Georgia um, ahead of the Senate runoffs there. He had made similar comments about, you know, basically saying, you know, I hope our vice president does the right thing. He's a great guy, but hopefully he stands up for the Constitution. And that was the first time he had kind of publicly sort of needled Mike Pence and, you know, publicly talked about this idea that he thought Mike Pence should intervene to to essentially reject electors for Joe Biden or do something that would uh, – give Trump the election. Um, and, you know, obviously legal experts had all said, you know, that's not the case. The vice president doesn't have the authority to do this on his own. And, uh, you know, Mike Pence himself had reportedly told Trump, uh, on Tuesday of that week that he felt that he did not have the authority to intervene. Um, and so to hear Trump then the next day on Wednesday, still kind of, you know, uh, prod Mike Pence and, and tell this this uh, amped up crowd that he felt Mike Pence needed to intervene and that hopefully Mike Pence does the right thing. Um, you know, it just sort of, I think, uh, showed that he he clearly had not listened to Mike Pence and he didn't, uh, you know, absorb the logic of what, what Mike Pence was saying. And, you know, this is the guy the vice president had been uh, the most loyal number two to Trump for four years, even when it you know, earned him mockery in some cases or criticism. Um, and so then for Trump to just kind of turn on him that quickly uh, and sort of throw him to the wolves there, I think was definitely pretty jarring. And, and like Jake said, sort of an indication of where things might be headed that day. And of course, we've seen reports since then that uh, people were chanting threats about Mike Pence or, you know, calling for him to to be injured or, or worse. Um, Hanged. I mean, they, they, so I, there's just some were chanting yeah, that was, Mike Pence. That was that was the reporting that was going around was that people were chanting that about Mike Pence. Yes, so um, I think it was just sort of you know it was just sort of a reflection of how out of hand things really got and and how little Trump seemed to care or listen to anybody who tried to tell him you know to, to tell him what the reality was. Um, he just you know he had his mindset on telling his supporters that he felt he was wronged and you know he was willing to to carry that message on through no matter how uh, how whipped up people seemed to get. Yeah, you know, the fact that they had to you know, basically you know, get all the uh, senators and uh, Congress people out and get them up to safety. Uh, did, did did you ever think, Jake, that we would ever see that kind of situation where they had to you know basically 
get everybody out and you know, have you know, basically protect their lives? Um, I think like like most people, I was surprised that the security crackdown, you know, didn't prevent that. Um, the on the other hand, though, you know, if you look at the, the rhetoric of what got Trump popular, I mean, I think people forget that in the 2016 primary, it wasn't just the, you know, bashing against Hillary Clinton and Democrats and, you know, Obama, even though all that stuff's very important and Trump being, you know, the birth of stuff with Obama is very important for him gaining credibility among Republicans you know, after being an actual Democrat and, and, you know, kind of painting his New York City image pathway into Republican politics without any issues. That's all there. That said, people forget that in 2016, Trump going after Republicans was some of the, you know, like, biggest fanfare he would get at rallies. People loved it. I mean, when people thought that Trump went after, you know, Jeb Bush in the primary for his brother in Iraq that that was political suicide, and voters actually loved it. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that, you know, yes, there's clearly a difference between criticizing politicians for, you know, not having the interests of the American people and actually, like, storming the Capitol and trying to, you know, kidnap, assassinate, or, like, whatever to politicians. And, and that was definitely, you know, a, a division in even the people who went to the rally. There were a lot of people who went there who didn't storm the Capitol. I, I, acknowledging all of that, I think that, the fact is that, you know, the, the temperature got turned up so much over the last really 10 to 15 years. But I think, you know, the, what I want to read more about and what I think will be studied about this is, you know, with the onset of smartphones and social media being so ubiquitous in, you know, the 2010s or the 20-teens, I guess we call it. We're in a decade now. Um, you know, that, that, that as that came along... I think that we saw a lot of pre-existing problems just get really accelerated and exacerbated. And you think in your life about, you know, how many people do you know from before who maybe they're friends or family, and, you know, you've seen them post on Facebook over the last number of years, and you're like, I recognize this person. Like, what in the heck happened to this person I knew who believes this crazy stuff? And that person may think that very well about, you know, you and, and your friends. Uh, like, I think that this dynamic of people really mistrusting each other, believing quite extreme, you know, uh, I know we, before the term conspiracy theories a lot, but really that these are people who believe that, you know, people have very nefarious motivations. I mean, the, the, the QAnon portion of the people who's from the Capitol thought that, you know, all the Democrats and, and you know, just power in Washington and Hollywood in general are, you know, a cabal of pedophiles who are, like, harvesting, like, the blood of children for this satanic stuff. And, like, if you really believe that and you're not just in it for, you know, like, an ironic thing online, like, if you really believe that your opponents are actual Satanists who are abusing children and have been covering up, you know, forever, then, like, does storming the Capitol sound unreasonable to you? You know, I think that's where it gets dangerous, is, like, if, if there's no, you know, system in place to check these beliefs, which there may not have really been before, but there at least was friction because with before social media and smartphones being everywhere, you know, for these ideas to gain momentum, 
there were so many hurdles they had to jump through. And that's just not the case anymore. And in fact, instead of there being hurdles, you know, the way a Facebook algorithm or a YouTube algorithm works is, you know, you tend to be pulled more towards the extremist stuff because that's what keeps you on the site longer. And I just think that, like, we haven't really fully come around to recognizing how, you know, for as culpable as Trump is in, you know, most of what happened on January 6th, and certainly the fact that I think if he had conceded and just said that, you know, like, no, there is no widespread election fraud, I lost, and I just carried on, you know, a bit for way too long, but we got caught off. Because he never did that, and because all these folks met on social media, you know, this is where it was going to go. You know, if it wasn't destroying the Capitol, it may have been another horrible, violent incident, but, like, I do think that we're uh, sometimes, you know, Trump makes it convenient at times to, I think, dismiss what is, you know, a much more long-standing problem we're going to be dealing with here. So, and you still have you know, supporters of Trump, like you know, Colorado's uh, Representative Lauren Boebert, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene out of Michigan. She's recently introduced uh, trying to introduce. Uh, Articles of impeachment against uh, President Biden, and of course, uh, Boebert uh, is accused of uh, uh, letting people know where House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi was uh, being escorted to. Uh, is there a concern, Brett and Jake, about these kind of uh, you know, uh, conspiracy theory uh, supporters that uh, there's still going to be trouble down the road? Well, I think you know Jake makes a good point, which is that. Um, you know, sort of the misinformation that's out there and these, these, um, you know, fringe beliefs that are out there have seeped in so deeply for some people that clearly there's an audience for it. I mean, that's, you know, made its way to Congress. There's multiple, multiple representatives who, um, are pretty open about some of their beliefs in these things. Um, you know, and they were elected to Congress and obviously their districts, you know, uh, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case, at least in Georgia, you know, she's in a very sort of safe Republican district. Um, so these people have, you know, pretty solid support. Um, and it's not a big secret about sort of, you know, the, the things that they believe, uh, or some of the conspiracies that they've, they've put out there. Um, so yeah, I think to Jake's point, you know, banning Trump from Twitter and social media, that certainly, uh, takes a big, uh, a big bite out of one of the big spreaders, I think, of misinformation. Um, but some of this stuff is, you know, it's on other platforms, it's on message boards, it's uh, it's seeps so deeply into some communities that I think it's it is a long term problem that will have to be addressed. How we sort of combat uh, the way these sort of ideas filter into the mainstream. And I may have said, yeah, and another thing I just add quickly to the best point about Marjorie Taylor Greene is that yes, she's in a safe district in Georgia, but because of Trump's influence in the Republican Party, she's also becoming, like, the face of the GOP in what is now a really important swing state. And, you know, like Brett also said earlier, Trump wants to, you know, have primary challenges to, you know, Governor Kemp in Georgia. And, like, you know, you have her being a presence on not only in Congress, but now, you know, in an important role in the electoral map. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, and, and Laura Bober pose a lot of problems for us as journalists of, like, if a member of Congress says or does something, is it news? And I think it's like a really, really tough uh, balance to try to strike of, you know, like 
when they're going to be, they just, they're, they're doing a lot of stunts recently. And I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of these like spats in Congress, the uh, metal detector thing that happened um, when they installed uh, security, installed a metal detector to go into the house chamber itself after January 6th. And all these members wouldn't want to go through it. And they wanted to carry, you know, their, their handguns in there. Like stuff like this is just going to keep happening. And uh, I think it's a real challenge because of, you know, how clearly powerful this misinformation is and that it does lead to action. You know, like, what are we supposed to do in the press about covering that? Because I, I just think it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to a whole number of ethical quandaries. Um, and, you know, both of them clearly had their profiles rise during all this. And, you know, none of that's going to go away. And I apologize. I think I said Michigan for Taylor Green. I do apologize for saying that. Uh, let's, we'll talk more about the transition of, uh, from Trump to Biden. We'll, we'll talk about uh, why there wasn't much of a transition. You're listening to Party Shots Podcast with uh, Ken Schott of the Daily Gazette, Associate Sports Center, all with Jake Lutt from Business Insider, and uh, Brett Samuels from The Hill. Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, they answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you, be well, and please keep reading. Hi, I'm Kaylin Brown, Managing Editor of the Daily Gazette. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott, host of the Parting Shots Podcast. We're talking... Uh, the presidential election and the transition from Donald Trump to uh, Joe Biden with the Brett Samuels of The Hill and Jake Lutt of Business Insider. So let's go now to the transition. There really wasn't much of a transition uh, for Joe Biden because uh, we, we talked about Trump not, not uh, you know, accepting the results of the election. 
How difficult has it been for uh, Joe Biden to uh, get things going here? Brett, well, you can start, Brett. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, certainly it, it set them back to not have access to, you know, key government documents or key officials who were on the front lines um, working in the Trump administration, especially given sort of the tumultuous time we're in. Obviously, Joe Biden inherits uh, a pandemic that is still raging, uh, an economic situation that because of the pandemic, you know, the economy is lagging and and we're seeing uh, job losses mount again. Um, Obviously, you know, the Trump administration sort of upended foreign policy over the last four years. Um, And over the summer, we had, you know, mass protests about racial injustice. So there's there's a lot of sort of dueling conflicts that the Biden administration has to deal with. And the fact that they didn't have access really for weeks at a time uh, to government officials, to government documents, to government office space, I think certainly set them back. Um, And we saw it continue right up into January where, you know, the Biden team said that the, the Pentagon uh, Pentagon officials for the Trump administration were essentially stonewalling them or that the budget office was stonewalling them and refusing to cooperate uh, to sort of help them put their own budget together for the incoming administration. So certainly there've been some setbacks, um, you know, the, the degree to which it has hindered them in some regards, I guess, is is sort of a current topic of debate. We've seen reporting that, or, or I guess Biden officials have actually now publicly been out there saying, you know, that they didn't have a plan to distribute vaccines left to them from the Trump administration. Uh, Dr. Fauci says that's not quite accurate. And obviously, you know, millions of people have been vaccinated. So there was some kind of foundation there. Um so I think, you know, the Biden the Biden team has been very open that they face roadblocks and that hindered them to some degree. So um, and especially, like I said, you know, given sort of the multitude of crises we're facing, I think it was uh, it was an unfortunate, uh, you know, obstacle that they faced having sort of a limited transition, uh, limited assistance from the outgoing administration. And Jake, just the fact that, you know, we finally see Fauci look. 20 years younger the other day uh, when he was talking about that. Wait, to, to finally have somebody who knows be him be allowed to speak freely about what's going on. Do you think that will help in the maybe destroy some of the misinformation that's out there with the uh, pandemic? I'm not sure about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think with the transition stuff, I agree with Brett that it's going to be tough to tell you know, like, to what degree it impeded things. Um, and, and there may be instances also where the Biden administration does what, uh, you know, President Obama was accused of during this term, which was sometimes, you know, um, passing the buck of responsibility onto the previous Republican administration. I do think what's interesting, um, you know, there are going to be holdovers like Fauci, uh, but, you know, a lot of people are, are kind of getting cleared out now. Like, you'll see a lot of, as soon as they'll come in, like, a kind of unassuming press release or something, and you realize, like, oh, this is, like, a number of, like, you know, senior officials who, like, were asked to resign and didn't, and are actually, like, you know, being fired. Like, you'll see more of that coming this week. And I think that the, the tricky thing with this is not only, you know, was this transition definitely bungled um, because the Trump administration, you know, wanted to pretend that, it wasn't happening for a while. But you also got to look back to 2016, 2017, I think, because this great book um, by Michael Lewis called The Fifth Risk, 
And really what this book is about is the um, Trump administration's kind of general lack of seriousness when it came to the transition in 2017. Um, and initially, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, was running this. And uh, Trump's son-in-law, you know, Ivanka Trump's husband, Jared Kushner, ended up uh, ousting Christie. This is according to multiple accounts, people who have organized. I mean, Christie himself said this. Um, and, you know, to, to not go on too long here, for the reasons why uh, Kushner forced Christie out, um, the Michael Lewis book basically focuses on all these agencies prepared extensive, you know, materials for the incoming Trump administration on, you know, serious threats facing the country. And simply, uh, you know, Lewis interviewed so many of these agency people from the Obama era who were waiting to have someone pick up their briefing book and, you know, sit down with them to talk about what's important in the agency, and they just never did. And I think that what's, what we all look at now is, like, we're now looking at two transitions in a row that didn't happen the way they're supposed to. Um, people who were in the George W. Bush White House have long said that one of the really terrible consequences of the 2000 election being so prolonged was that the, tra the transition really got truncated. And they felt that, you know, that maybe even contributed to some of the preparedness for something like 9-11. I think, look at also the pandemic right now. You know, the CDC was the leading authority in the world on infectious diseases of any sort and was going to be the go-to institution when a global pandemic worse than SARS came around. And, you know, as we all know, uh, sitting here at home, still working remotely and wearing masks in you know, what is now January of 2021, that didn't really go according to plan either. So I think there are a lot, what I'm, this is all a way of saying, there are long-term things that could be harmed by the transition that we just have no way of being aware of now. And um, I think that's something that is going to, you know, just be looming for, you know, as long as Joe Biden is president, is, you know, what shape were all these agencies in the federal apparatus in when he took office, and to what degree, you know, may that be responsible for something bad happening versus, you know, simply the responsibility lying at, you know, President Biden and the people who are in place now. I, I mean, I just think that's, that's very, very dicey territory, but, you know, when you have two transitions in a row that just didn't happen the way that, you know, the the parties involved should have handled them, uh, I just think it leaves a lot of blind spots, and, and that, that's something that you can't discount, you know? How surprised were you? Because we saw what they were doing to prepare for the inauguration uh, on Wednesday. We, basically, Washington was just basically locked down, fortified, National Guard troops, fearing the worst. And it turned out nothing happened. And it's like, how surprised were you that it was like a very you know, calm day? Jake, you want to take that? Um yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, uh, it, in terms of, like, I can't really, you know, get far enough to the motivations of the, the, the people involved. I, I do know that, like, you know, there were reports of threats at, at 50 state capitals, and, you know, I did read a number of the message boards, like, uh, before it went down, the Donald, and, you know, poking around on QAnon stuff. And we have reporters who are more specifically focused on, you know, QAnon and stuff like that. But the, the general thing from at least people who were posting was that, you know, round two of some sort was going to be coming. And the idea was to draw out 
security into protracted conflict in as many different areas as possible. And I think that didn't happen simply because, um, you know, I, I, the question of whether January 6th was a success or a failure is actually quite hotly debated among, um, you know, that sphere online. And, you know, there have been some actually kind of, I'm not sure whether to call it surprising, but there are kind of um, some second thoughts that have been expressed on, on these forums about whether QAnon was, like, real. Um, and I do think that it's a mix of, at least from what we can see, you know, in the forums of people having a change of heart about where they're at with the movement, um, people maybe feeling embarrassed about what happened, and then obviously the fact that, like, a lot of people got, oh, sorry about that, a lot of people got arrested. Um, that's a, I'm still hearing my doorbell, I'm so sorry about this. So, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, live, uh, live, live show, right? So, anyway, just, just want to go on that, like, I think that the, the, the fact that people got arrested and the, the display of security was so overwhelming, um, that makes sense. But I also think that, like, you know, um, there's, there's, there's more to be looked at here of how people thought going into the, this thing, and I mean people who, like, took part in the insurrection, thought they would have legal protections. And, you know, I think it's why people were like, why are these folks not wearing, like, face coverings? Like, why are they, like, showing their identities in a lot of cases when they're doing it? And I think the, you know, it, it might not be the answer in every case, but it was clear that they expected to, you know, not face any consequences for it. People were surprised they lost their jobs because of doing this. So I think because it just became such a huge social phenomenon, what everyone was talking about, I think that did change things going into it. We just don't know to what degree it lies, you know, in all those different factors. Brad, obviously you cover the White House. Uh, how different is it now? I know we're just not even a week in yet, but it seems like uh, you have actually have, uh, you know, it seems like a uh, more well-respected uh, press conference than we, we saw under Trump. Yeah, it's certainly the difference is <laughs> been very notable in just the first few days. Um, you know, obviously, this White House is not run, you know, is not dictated essentially by whatever the, the president's latest tweets are. Um, the the press briefings are back to being daily, and they're, um, you know, a little more substantive and, and have fewer, uh, you know, confrontational back and forths. Um, so, you know, and <laughs> we haven't had knock on wood, over the weekend, we haven't had any kind of crazy breaking news, which was sort of, you know, a, a hallmark of the Trump presidency, was things were happening seven days a week. Um, but, yeah, so it's been, uh, it's definitely been a, a shift, and people are talking about, you know, sort of a return to normalcy, and, um, you know, I do think uh, there have been some comms written about this. I think the, the media needs to kind of be careful not to sort of be lulled to sleep or lulled into this sense of, you um, you know, essentially going easy on the Biden White House or sort of, you know, being uh, a little starry-eyed about the fact that we're back to having regular briefings or that we're back to having, uh, you know, health experts be there to talk um, and to suggest that, you know, that's the time to sort of treat you with kid gloves or anything. But but with that being said, you know, it's definitely uh, it's definitely been uh, a very notable shift and in some ways a refreshing to have, you know, Dr. Fauci back at the podium answering questions. Um, and he acknowledges that he's able to kind of speak freely uh, without worrying about what, what others might say. So, um, 
you know, it's definitely in, on top of that. Of course, it's uh, there's been a lot of policy shifts. You know, Joe Biden spent the first his first few days in office basically just undoing a lot of key Trump administration measures on the environment, on immigration, and so on. Um, so yeah, both policy wise and tone wise, it's it's a very noti- noticeable shift from from the Trump years, um, and we'll kind of see uh, see how it how it goes going forward. Jake, the Democrats have the control of the House and the Senate now. But you hear Mitch McConnell's, you know, talking about they're going to try to block some initiatives if they drop the if the filibuster is eliminated. What do the Democrats and what does Biden have to do to you know try to get back to some spirit of cooperation? Um, actually, I was struck by how many questions in the briefings were centered around a variety of this, of, like, you know, people asking the Biden administration, like, how long are you going to, like, put, try to put up with this or seek cooperation? Um, and I, I just think that the fact is, like, 50-50 Senates have been rare. Um, you know, in our country's history, there are procedures of how to do a power-sharing agreement. Um, you know, Mr. McConnell's already applying a good bit of leverage to the parliamentary rules on this. And that's what he's going to do. That's, like, that's, that's what he does. I don't understand why people are, like, surprised that Mitch McConnell is going to whip his caucus in the interest of his party, you know, when he spent, like, eight years doing a variety of measures that pe- people on the left didn't like when Obama was president. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that uh, realistically, and this is what Biden's been reading a lot about FDR um, and the kind of hundred days theory of the presidency that... You know, really, you have a very short window to swing big, basically. You know, for the whole time, you can do executive orders, you have the agencies, but, like, when it comes to Congress, you really have a very limited time to try to get um, some big initiatives through. And I think that, you know, um, the Biden administration is still being, they're, they're kind of holding their cards a little close to their chest here with what they want to prioritize and when. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is that the Democrats are going to be very vulnerable going into the 2022 midterms. Um, and, you know, the, the other, to, to a point Brett said, and, you know, I thought about it when, when, Brett, when you were in the briefing room, but I, when I immediately saw this press conference, that, um, you know, yes, I think the the kind of relief that was being expressed by reporters about how different this was, um, you know, something that the press should definitely be careful about because, you know, like, you know, you don't, I mean, you, you really don't want to, even if you're expressing a general, a genuine feeling of like, oh my God, thank, thankfully this is so crazy, you don't want to be showing people you're in the tank for one side or the other when, you know, really I think what that comes from was the fact that the Trump administration put reporters in such a, a bind and a tough place a lot of the time with, you know, you just see explicit attacks on the freedom of the press and, like, a lot of times, I don't know how people were supposed to respond when, you know, someone like Keely McEnany or Sean Spicer or Sarah Huckabee Sanders would go up there and essentially whenever they had briefings, they were used to, like, break the press. So you look at where we are now, and I think that the, you know, because the Biden administration is going to be doing what press shops do, which is, you know, a bunch of spin and trying to, like, you know, stay on a concerted message for the day... I think we will know more about not really how much they're trying to get bipartisanship, but like where are they going to target their 
you know, leverage in this respect. Because, I mean, for as much as people want there to be, like, a healthcare reform bill and a huge climate package and a huge infrastructure package and all this stuff, it's like the Biden administration is going to be lucky if one of those gets done, you know? So I think that we have to, you know, be on our game as reporters to obviously, you know, be, be tough on the way the Biden administration, you know, does their PR. And then also read between the lines a little bit because, you know, they're going to reveal where they think they are going to try to, you know, get Republicans on board for stuff. Um, and a lot of this is going to end up turning into, I think we're going to see like a ton of case studies on, you know, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins on the Republican side. Mitt Romney uh, as a figure, I think, is positioned to get um, a lot of, you know, profiles and scrutiny in this respect because he's definitely a Republican who you could see voting with Democrats and some of this stuff. But you also, on the Democratic side, it's not just going to be about Republicans not wanting to go along. You know, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, is not even in, in favor of changing the filibuster. Um, you know, he represents coal country, and a lot of a lot of climate-related proposals are not going to initially fly with him. So, um, and then, you know, the last one I mentioned would be uh, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, who... Is a really fascinating figure. She is um, kind of in the spirit of John McCain in that state, a bit of a quote-unquote maverick mm -hmm. with not necessarily having her personal politics aligned with the parties very closely. Apparently her, her real friends in the Senate are all Republicans, and she doesn't really uh, hang out, you know, or talk socially or, you know, kind of out-of-work-related functions with Democrats. So you have this group of, you know, like, four or five senators on both sides here who will ultimately decide a lot of the votes. But I do think that the general, um, you know, hemming and hawing about bipartisanship is like, yeah, it's going to happen because the Republicans could very well take back either the House or the Senate in 2022. And, you know, realistically, it's going to come down to, you know, maybe one bill where the Biden administration will really, really try to get, uh, you know, a lot of Republican defections on it, but like this will be American people voted for. The American people voted for, uh, you know, in a lot of these Senate races in states where Biden won, they voted to keep Republicans. And you look at Maine, Susan Collins was expected to lose that race. Lindsey Graham was seen to be all ropes in South Carolina. People thought Steve Bullock would win the Senate race in Montana, and like none of that happened. So, you know, I, I think uh, this, this is. This is, in a weird way, the expression of the American people's will, and um, I hate to, you know, bring up things like 2022 and 2024, but, like, that's where, if you want to really have a mandate to, to get stuff through, um, you know, those would be it. And, again, the Biden people will say that they won by, you know, by a million votes, but um, it's just going to be so tight that this is what you have to come to expect. What's going to make Biden's uh, first term, we'll say, you know, first term, because we don't know if he's going to get reelected in 24, but his four years as president, what's going to be the key factor that will make it successful? Brett? Yeah, well, I think, you know, he's going to need to, A, get the pandemic under control, I think, would be sort of the top line, and that's the thing that Biden and his aides talk about more than anything else is focusing on the pandemic. And I think, you know, if they're able to successfully, um, 
you know, get that under control, get vaccines widely distributed and into people's arms um, and have people return to some degree of normality in the in the next year or so. I think that would be a big win. And then, of course, you know, if they can get the economy humming along again after that, that would be another big win. Um, so I think those are kind of the two biggest things because it's the most pressing things right now for people. Um, but, you know, Jake brought up a lot of a lot of good uh, sort of legislative ideas that I think they're going to want to push, whether it's, you know, climate related or infrastructure related um, or healthcare related. And so I think, you know, if after they get the pandemic under control, if they're able to do that, if they're able to get, you know, at least one of those passed, um, you know, in the next couple of years, that would bode well for them that they can go into the midterms at least and say, you know, look what we were able to accomplish. And hopefully, you know, they would hope to solidify their, their majorities from there. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, most pressingly it's the pandemic uh, is, is sort of the item A, B, and C for a lot of people. Um, and after that, if they're able to get some kind of big legislative package passed, that would be a, a big win for them as well. Mm-hmm. Jake? Yeah, and I mean, hard to put it better than that. I think, you know, another way of, of, of framing the pandemic under the control, you know, to, to kind of get the heart of your question, Ken, is I think – Deficit spending is like the ball game here, really. I think if the Biden administration can convince you know the American people and Congress that it is okay for us to spend big in this emergency scenario while interest rates are super, super, super low, I think that's the key to a lot of these problems. Um, at least being just like addressed in a comprehensive way in the first place, and. I just think it's going to be very tricky because, you know, on the economic side, a lot of assumptions have been changing about what economists once thought was the seesaw relationship, you know, between interest rates and employment and inflation. And I think, you know, the old thinking was, um, you know, what we should have seen before the pandemic was a rise in inflation because there was high employment in the U.S. Um, interest rates had been super low from the whole recession aftermath, and that prices should have really crept up quite a lot. Um, and that, that would also, by the way, include wages. But that, that didn't happen. And then the pandemic hit. Um, you know, we had the first, uh, you know, two rounds of stimulus. And, you know, we're going to, we're kind of back in a same debate that Republicans and Democrats always have. Republicans trying to frame themselves as, you know, the balanced budget conscious, you know, limited government um, party and the Democrats uh, trying to figure out a way to say, like, well, wait, what about what you guys, like, blew up the deficit, like, all those times before, including during the Trump presidency? And I think the issue with that back-and-forth framing that we're so used to is that um, it doesn't really get at the fact that, like, what's actually happening at a macroeconomic level right now is very confusing to, like, even the most you know, uh, well-read experts about, like, what are we supposed to do with this? And um, this is where I think Janet Yellen at the Fed is going to be very interesting. But, like, at every turn, you know, whether it's 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 going to be spending a bunch, like, for example, should we give medical masks to more Americans? That's what a lot of countries in Europe have been doing for months, and we, we've already gotten around to that. You know, with the vaccine distribution, Biden's already signed executive orders, getting the National Guard involved, you know, using the Defense Production Act if necessary. But I think um, to move the needle on all this stuff, you need to, like, you need to spend a lot of money. And I, I think it was interesting that 
the Biden administration has branded the two point, uh, sorry, the one point nine trillion stimulus proposal as you know this was not meant to look good optically as a number. It's just the number that the country needs right now, which just so happens to be short of two trillion dollars. Um, I'm not really sure how that holds up, but <laughs> I, you know, I think that their ability to successfully convince people that deficit spending is actually not going to be like the death knell for this country. And on the other side of that, how credible are voters going to see Republicans who, you know, already have started trying to kind of tighten the belt quite a bit after, you know, cutting taxes and spending a bunch and blowing up the deficit and debt under Trump, um, instead of, you know, what would normally be their orthodoxy, which was when you cut taxes, you also cut spending, fortunately, uh, in, in their metaphor that the federal government should just be like a family at home having to balance their budget at the end of every month. You know, I don't think it's, really, it's a kind of a very lofty thing, but like there is no issue, whether it's like healthcare or climate or the pandemic, that doesn't involve, given how, you know, beaten the global economy is right now, there's not a single side of that that, that does not involve spending, uh, out of the deficit and involve some form of printing more money. So, you know, I think that the, obviously politicians don't like to frame it like that because that isn't really, you know, it doesn't make anybody look good necessarily. But I do think that because interest rates are going to stay so low and because we haven't really had the inflation that economists would expect, um, other countries are using this as an opening to say, like, maybe we should reconsider, uh, you know, a number of monetary policy assumptions we had and we sort of have that debate in this country and i think a lot of that's because trump has been at the center of so many things but you know i think that could be really the the crux of what every issue is going to come down to um and you know i think the biden administration like we said earlier it's cards close to the chest right now and you know we're not going to really know where they want to push hard until uh you know maybe a few weeks or months from now final question for you gentlemen and you can jake you can start Trump's legacy, what is it? And obviously he's impeached again. They're going to have a trial uh, in February. What, what will we remember about the four years Donald Trump was president of the United States? Um, I think it's going to be determined on a number of fronts, but I definitely think that the pandemic was already going to be huge. And I think that Trump himself, from his reading, reading the reporting of the, of the best White House reporters out there, I think he clearly realized that January 6th very quickly became a top-line item in his legacy. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think going back to the first term, we thought that the Russia investigation and the first impeachment would have been these, like, huge asterisks on his presidency. And, like, they really don't make the top three to the top five for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I'll add on that is that I do think that um, Trump's effect on the kind of notion of American exceptionalism could actually be quite substantial. Um, you know, my, my, my kind of tether to this is, you know, I, I've uh, spent a bit of time in France and you know, I studied there and I worked there uh, teaching English at a high school in Paris for a year. So I've, I've been a number of, you know, French friends who I'm in touch with. And, like, I got messages from people who I'm not even very particularly acquainted with after January 6th about what happened from people I knew in France. I mean, it's just like all the time. And I think that we don't, um, unless you're someone who maybe has to travel internationally a lot for work, or uh, I guess had to before, uh, we don't really think about how strong you know the American brand is worldwide. And 
I don't think we're going to be able to tell how much damage has been done to it yet, but clearly damage has been done, and I think that, you know, in the long term, Trump will always be associated with that, even if there are other, you know, important factors behind our global reputation falling. So that, I mean, that's, that's the best way I can put it, uh, you know, this close to him leaving office. And Brett? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Jake. It's uh, it's hard to say, um, you know, just a couple weeks after, uh, just less than a week after he's, he's officially left office. But um, I think certainly, you know, the capitals, the the capital riots will be um, sort of a big mark on his legacy, um, and just more broadly going off that sort of, uh, I think, sort of the rise of, you know. I guess it's hard to hard to say the right the put the right words on it, but sort of the rise of you know extremist groups domestically and you know sort of people being openly uh, you know racist in some cases. I, I think you know when I think of sort of the defining moments of this term, I think it's sort of uh, the Capitol riots on January sixth. I think of the Charlottesville riots, um, where another another instance where he seems to kind of defend uh, an extremist group. Um, Lafayette Square, where, you know, people, uh, he, he marched to this church to hold up a Bible after peaceful protesters were cleared. Um, and what those all have in common is sort of, you know, um, you know, him essentially not sticking up for peaceful protesters or sticking up for what we consider, I guess, you know, longstanding values and principles of, of our democracy. So I think those are the kind of incidents that I'll remember um, that stick out to me when I think back. Um but I guess on the flip side of that, you know, policy-wise, um, I think the court system will be impacted for decades by by the Trump administration. And part of the credit for that certainly goes to Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate. But, you know, Trump appointed three young uh, conservative judges to the Supreme Court. Uh, he stocked the federal benches with, with conservative judges. Um, and those are appointments that will, will reverberate for a long time. So... Um, you know, his own personal legacy, I think, will be sort of stained by some of these things, some of these events that he was part of. But, um, you know, I think he certainly uh, conservatives will have to be happy with some of the things that uh, that he managed to accomplish uh, in office. And, and I think his reshaping of the courts is sort of uh, at the top of that list, at least when I when I sort of think about how it'll be uh, how his administration will be remembered. Uh, Brett Samuels of The Hill and Jake LaHutt of Business Insider, thank you once again for your insights uh, on Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, uh, it's been a pleasure once again, and um, hopefully we'll talk next time. We'll talk actually some sports. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ken. Thanks for having us back. Your Red Wings it are still like losing, by the way, way Jake. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Jake? <laughs> Red Wings are still I losing. I not. <laughs> So I appreciate it again, uh, gentlemen. Thank you very much. That's, uh, of course, uh, Jake Lev, Business Insider, and uh, Brett Samuels of The Hill. And that wraps up this edition of the Parting Shots podcast. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email to me at shots. That's S-C-H-O-T-T at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed in the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Morning Shots Podcast is a production of Gazette Newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Morning Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York, have a great day. Be smart, stay safe, wear the face mask.